Thank you so much for tuning in to Encounter AZ's podcast. We are believing that God is going to use this ministry to change your life. Now enjoy the message. This last year in 2019, we started about a year ago, November, so it was just before 2019, we started a program called the Externship. And this program consisted of about 11, 10, 11 people that, that decided, hey, I, I want to begin to move forward in, in where I'm at with God, in my leadership, in my speaking abilities, in conveying the messages that God has given me um, to the responsibility of what it looks like to begin to disciple people. And we took some of these people, we um, voluntold a couple of them. Um, some of them volunteered. Um, some of them we pulled them, just kicking and screaming. Through a journey that was, uh, I have no other word to describe, but incredible. Um, it, it seems so small for one Sunday out of, or one day out of a month that we got together and we began to talk about a lot of different things in ministry and leadership and life and, and, and the simplicities and the, 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 the hardships of, of dealing with people. Uh, I'm sorry. Nobody in here is hard. Just everyone out there. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, but just in your families. And if you know, if you've been in our community groups long enough, one of the things we've said when we establish our community groups is, is we want to be a family, but understand family's messy. Family's messy, but you know what happens in family? Is you don't leave them when it's messy. You strengthen when it's messy. You, you, you boggle down when it's messy. It's hard, and we're still cutting it out. I'm going to switch to this other mic because it's going to happen all day. And, and, and it becomes this thing that when we bonded in unity, we begin to fulfill the scripture that it says, when you're unified in me and I in you, they'll know who I am. I, I mean, it's that simple. So we're a family here. But what came out of this was a group of people that went through this journey of this and hardships. And I promise you, every single one of them, who, everyone who's in the externship today and last stand up for me so we can, I want you guys just to stand up. Bruce and Jen, <clears throat> Zach, Jess in the way back. Yeah, I see Jess in the way back. <laughs> Every single one of these guys went through this journey where there were tears and there was laughter and then there was a lot more tears and then probably a little bit more tears and maybe more tears after that. And, and it was this thing that me and Brent kept looking at ourselves like, this is God. And, and I was so amazed to see these people when they came in to think that this was a class about public speaking and preaching to a year later, it transformed lives to where now these guys are ready to say, hey, I can take this person, disciple him. I can do this. And I have more confidence in my ear to God because I pushed in. The problem that we have in a lot of churches is that everybody expects the pastors to put their ear to heaven and then tell you what it is. And I've said this before, and I know Brent have said this before. We're not Moses. We're like Peter and Paul saying, push you out the boat a little bit. Put your ear to heaven because you can hear God just like I can. You can ascend the hill just like I can. You can get under his feet just like I can. And when a church gets the revelation of his presence and who he is, Revival happens. It just does. Because hearts begin to burn. And these guys' hearts are burning. And so I'm so excited for us to do this once again. And the format is very similar to last time. You want me to introduce the format or you want to introduce the format? I'll introduce the format and I'll let him introduce the message. We have six people that are going to come up here for seven minutes apiece. And they're going to lay out a message that Brent is going to start today and just give the foundation for where their journey, really where it's been, just like the last month and their testimony and what God has been doing to them. And I want you guys to hear because I know that God is going to speak. I have a feeling that there's going to be this combining of a lot of things. And it's going to conglomerate today. And I know if you push in today... You're going to feel his presence like you've never before because I feel it in the air. I don't know if anybody else can feel this, but his presence is here. Amen? All right. We're going to preach a message this morning titled Make Room. If you've been a part of our church for uh, the past few months, you might remember a few months ago we finished 40 weeks of prayer and fasting. And uh, so we, we, basically, we didn't fast for 40 weeks. That sounded bad. I could never, I mean, without the Lord's help, right? 40 hours, I could probably do. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, so, 
But uh, we, we basically ended it by talking about making room for God, and we talked about uh, the prophet Elisha and how he would pass by the Shunammite woman's home and have these visitations, but she said, I want a place for him to stay when he comes. I want to take it from a visitation to a habitation. I want to make room for God. Does that make sense? And so this morning, we're going to kind of continue along that theme, but also we're going to go into Christmas, because I need you to know this morning, the Christmas story is the greatest story ever told. In fact, I think every other good story, every movie with a great plot is based on something from the Christmas story, because the Christmas story is beautiful. It's a great story. Have you ever heard a bad story? Let me ask you this. Have you ever heard someone tell you a story about their dream? And they're like, so, okay, what happened was I was at my house, but it wasn't my house. It was actually 7-Eleven, and, like, there was a dog, and you're like, I'm done. This sucks. This is a terrible story, okay? But, but not the Christmas story is a beautiful thing because it's actually God coming to be born in a manger, in a feeding trough for animals, and to be put in diapers. God came from a throne to be, have his diapers changed, to be bickering with his brothers and sisters and getting made fun of at school. The same things that we went through. In fact, he was tempted in every way that we are, yet was, was without sin. And so he came down and went through all of this. Why? Because he wanted to restore a right relationship with you. But there were some things he had to go through. Our verse for, for the message, kind of our theme verse today, is Hebrews 12.1, and it's going to be this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a, such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. And so the thing is, is if God's going to move in your life, there might be a time where you need to make some room. When we hear the Christmas story, we hear about Joseph and Mary making this trek back to Bethlehem, Joseph's hometown, because there was a tax and, they, and they, had to, they had to actually be counted. There was a census and they had to count every person in their hometown. So Mary, um, eight, nine months pregnant, starts this journey to Bethlehem on the back of a donkey and they get there and there's no room in the inn. And I wonder what this hotel was called because we don't even know, do we? No one remembers this hotel. Imagine if this inn had room for Jesus. This, this would be like, you wouldn't even know what Holiday Inn would, was. You'd know like Savior Inn. It'd be like worldwide, the greatest hotel ever. But we don't know anything about it because there was no room there for God to move. And I wonder if many times in our lives, God doesn't get to do everything he wants to do through us because we don't make room for him. And so in this way, we have six points you're about to hear, uh, quickly like gunfire if you're taking notes. So I'm going to ask Pastor Casey, he's going to come up. Casey's our kids pastor, and uh, he's been taking this journey with us, and he's going to tell you something in his life he had to make room for God. Good morning. I got closer to God when I made room for him by removing myself from my own life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day, this opportunity that we can come and we could share different ways that we've made room for you, God. I just pray that your presence is here, God, and that you will, um, you will be the one that changes these people's lives. Not our words, but you, God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I like to teach and I like to preach. Today I'm going to teach a little just based off of kind of my story um, and kind of where I've been through Growing up, um, I've heard Pastor Brent say a lot of things because I've been in probably every Wednesday, I don't know, I'm looking at my clock, um, every Wednesday, every Wednesday service for like three, four years, okay, so that's a lot, um, uh, and, but I've heard him say this many times, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote him. Growing um, he says, the two most important days of your, life's, uh, of your life is the day that you were born and the day you find out why you were born. Not the day you got married, not the day, the day you got saved is pretty important, but today I'm going to talk, and I'm hopefully I'm talking to some people that are saved, but are ready to go to the next level. Today I want to talk about the last part. Um, the last part of what he said is the day you find out why you were born. Uh, today, or I'm going to tell you about how when I put my identity in Christ, that's what changed my life. Not being a Christian, because Christianity isn't just this, you go to church and you, like, you pay your tithes and you serve. Like, that's cool, that's great, I love that. But when you actually put your whole identity in Christ, like I did, that's what changed my life. Knowing your identity in Christ is one thing, but understanding how that, um, understanding how that uh, practically changes the way 
oh man, I'm slurring this word, sorry. Knowing your identity in, is in Christ is one thing, but understanding how it practically is to be lived is another. Um, so today I'm going to write some, uh, I'm going to give you three points. So if you're taking notes on my little seven-minute sermon, um, I got four minutes, wow, um, please uh, write these down. Okay, so the first thing about putting your identity in Christ is, is, when we put our identity in Christ, we no longer chase after the flesh um, of the, our flesh, but instead we seek God in all areas of our life. So my first scripture for today is John 2, 15, 17. It says, so he made a whip out of cords and, nope, that's the wrong ones, but that's okay. I got it over here. It said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If any loves the world, he, um, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with his desires, but whoever does and will of the will of God will abide in him forever. Like, when you put your identity in Christ, literally everything around you should change. My my. My desire to go and get massively drunk and go party with my friends, when I put my identity in Christ, that should change. Why? Because majority of the times when I'm going out with my friends and I'm going to do those partying things and I'm just being real with, my, with what, I've been, what I dealt with before is that's what I put my identity in. Because if I didn't go drink and I didn't go party and I didn't do that, that's who I was. But guess what? That's not now who I am. I am, and I am a son of of Jesus, and I love Jesus, so now my identity is in Christ, therefore your desires will change, not may change, will change, okay, and that only comes from seeking him, okay, if we're not seeking to find our identity in Christ, reality check, you are going to seek something else, you might be seeking money, you might be seeking fame, you might be seeking um, whatever it is, but you are seeking something, now what that is, you have to determine, okay? Um, number two, we no longer fear the future. Raise your hand if you've ever feared the future. Okay, uh, I just had a kid. That's scary. I fear the future, okay? Um, it's scary, but guess what? When your identity is in Christ, you no longer have room to fear because it's in Christ. You don't have to fear what's going to happen with politics because guess what? It doesn't matter. Your identity isn't in what happens in the world. It's in Christ. Let me say that again. It doesn't matter when we think the world's going to end. It doesn't matter who we think politically who should be in charge. If our identity is in Christ, it doesn't matter. And that's what God's looking for. Um, uh, it says Romans 8, 14, 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive um, the slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I don't want to see a bunch of Christians worried about what's going to happen because then we don't really look like we love Jesus because we're so worried about everything else around us. So when you put your identity in Christ, we no longer have room to fear about that because it doesn't matter. Um, number three, we should not be surprised when suffering comes, but we can be confident that it will produce things of eternal value. We will have suffering. We will have fallback. We will have things, trials, tribulations. We'll be going through things like that. But again, when our identity is in Christ, that's who we should stand firm on. We, in kids' church a long time ago, we used to always sing, Solid rock I stand, not ground sinking sand. We don't want to, we want to stand on the rock. We don't want to be the Christians that look around and say, like, they look at us and be like, dude, why are you like in sinking sand? Like, I can only see your head. Like, what is going on with you? No, we're going to be on a rock standing firm saying my identity is in Christ. I don't care what I'm going through. I don't care what you're going through. You need to stand on Jesus. Jesus. So for me and my story, my life's not about me. I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about Jesus. There are times in my life that, are there times in my life that this is not going to be the case 100%. It's going to happen. But I got to put my identity in Christ daily. 
Today I pray that you place your full identity in Christ. Don't just come to church. Don't just give your tithes. Don't just be part of the group to be part of the group, but literally give your life to Jesus. And then guess what? All that other stuff will come. Yeah, we, we, we would love for you to get plugged in and serve and tithe 100%. But if your soul isn't where it needs to be, if you aren't grounded in your identity in Christ, that doesn't matter. Your money don't matter. Your soul matters. I got closer to God when I made room for him by removing myself from my own life. My name is Jessica, and I got closer to God when I made room for him by removing offense. My dad always says expectations lead to disappointment, and for me, disappointment leads to offense. So last week, Pastor Brent talked a little bit about how hope deferred makes the heart sick, and today I'm going to tell you a little testimony about my dating life and a season where my heart was sick. Um, I grew up loving Jesus. I've always had a relationship with Jesus since I can remember. And um, at a very early age in my, or in my teenage years, I had a vision where the Lord showed me that my heart is protected by him and I was not to give it to somebody unless he gave me the say so. And I've stuck with that. Um, everybody would always tell me, you'll make an amazing mom. You're going to marry a pastor. You're going to have 10 kids. Um, I went to Bible college, and um, the motto there was a ring by spring or your money back. Spring came around. I did not have a ring, and I sure did not get my money back. Um, so at age 19, I told the Lord that I was not going to date um, unless it was intentional. I, I was going to be very intentional with my heart. And... Um, so 19 to 35, I didn't really date. I would meet people, and either they couldn't handle my intensity or for whatever reason they didn't want to date me, or I just wasn't interested. Um, I wasn't easily impressed. And so at age 37, um, <clears throat> I met a man who charmed me, and I thought he was the one. Um, he told me everything that I wanted to hear, and... I really thought in that time, um, all that time, all those years from 19 to, you know, 37, I was protecting my heart. I was honoring the Lord. I was faithful. I protected my purity. I was working for the Lord. Um, but this man came along, and after five months, he broke up with me over a text message, and my heart was broken. Um, heart sickness invaded my spirit like nothing that I've ever experienced before, and um, I turned into what I will refer to as the prodigal son syndrome. So if you guys don't know about the prodigal son, you can find it in Luke 15. It is the story of a father and two sons, the older son and the younger son. The younger son um, takes his, asks his father for his inheritance. He goes off and squanders it on ridiculousness, and that represents us going out into the world. He comes back to the father um, wanting to be a servant, and the father welcomes him back as a son, like God welcomes us back after we rebel. Um, but the other side of that story is the older son, who all that time had been faithfully working with his father. He had been doing the things that he was supposed to do, knowing that someday he would have everything because um, he didn't have anybody to share that inheritance with. So, <clears throat> um, but he was mad when his brother came back and they... Um, threw him a party. And so in Luke 15, 25 through 30, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he was uh, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But, the an but <clears throat> he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when his this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. I've had this conversation with the Lord many times. 
um, I never asked for a fattened calf or a goat, but, you know. Um, <laughs> just like, you know, God, I'm serving you. I'm faithful. I'm doing it right. How come I can't have the one thing my heart desires? Um, and um, I was just, you know, in this season, for the first time in my life, I almost walked away from the faith that I had had since I was probably five years old. I don't remember asking Jesus to be the Lord of my life. He just always has been. And I'm not proud to say that. Um, and so the thing that healed me in this season, this was about a six-month um, time period. The thing that healed me is I was reading about Joseph. And if you guys know the story of Joseph, um, he is one person in the Bible that I believe has every right to be offended. He, his mother passed away um, after childbirth with his brother. He was sold into slavery by his half-brothers. He was thrown into prison for some crime that he did not commit. He was left and forgotten in prison for many years. When he came out, because of his integrity, um, the pharaoh... Um, elevated him to the same place as almost to the same place it says and when his family came to get food during the um famine he had the opportunity to off his brothers he could have killed them he could have thrown them into prison but instead because he loved the lord and he operated out of wisdom and integrity he brought israel into egypt so that they would be saved had he killed his brothers he would have wiped out the tribes of israel and they would be no more God's promise to Abraham was that his people would outnumber the stars. So um, when I read that, I repented. I um, asked for forgiveness. I forgave myself. I forgave this man that hurt me. And I had to forgive the Lord. Um, and so this week, the Lord's been talking to me about how we just got through teaching about the fruits of the Spirit and community groups and how the opposite of um, uh forgiveness is offense right so when we hold on to offense it's like I am notorious for buying bananas and letting them go rotten I intend to use them I want to like make that really good um you know banana bread or whatever and I just let them go rotten and I feel like that is a good picture of how we are with the fruits of the spirit if you don't forgive the father cannot forgive you so I just would like to encourage everybody we're walking into 2020 leave forgiveness or unforgiveness at the altar leave offense back in 2019 and let the fruit of the spirit be what guides you um and so my dad always my dad also always says will it matter in 50 years so encounter let's be a church that measures our offense by that if it's not going to matter in 50 years don't pick it up my name is Jessica and I got closer to God when I made room for him by walking away from offense that was awesome my name is Tiffany, and I got closer to God when I made room for him by removing my idols. So I hope it's okay if we talk about idols here today, church. <laughs> I have mine all written down because cell phone batteries are from the devil, and they'll die the minute I pick it up to look at it, and I'll lose everything. So, uh, Jonah chapter 2 says, those who cling to idols turn away from the love of God. Um, but what is an idol? Uh, we're going to start... With Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, do I have it? All right. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So you may come off thinking that idols are statues, physical images. But in Colossians 3, it says that whatever belongs to the earthly nature, greed, impurity, sexual sin, evil desires, lust, that those are idolatry and to put them to death. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives us a big hint about the law when he says that if you so much as are angry with your brother or look after a woman to lust after her, that you have committed adultery or murder in your heart. So it's not just a physical thing. And Paul in chapter 7 of Romans tells us straight out that the law of God, which includes the Ten Commandments, which we just read the second commandment there, that the law of God is spiritual. So your idols are not just statues, but they're spiritual things. And in our spirit, we understand this. In Judges 10, 
Verse 14, it says, cry out to the gods that you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. When we get into, like, you know, things aren't going so great for us, so we have a tendency to escape into things, you know, entertainment culture, drugs and alcohol, pornography, all kinds of things like that, romance novels. Don't kid yourself, ladies. I'm serious. I'm serious. I'm serious here, okay? <laughs> Yep, those rom-coms, you got to give them up, Pastor. The Lord told me. <laughs> so when you're, but you're, when you're really, really in trouble, who do you cry out to? haagen Netflix, PlayStation Network. No, heck no. You come to the altar, right? You come, you're coming to every prayer service. You're coming to every Sunday service. You're coming to the, the community group. You're filling out your connection card with your prayer request, right? Because you're in trouble, and you know that only the Most High can save you, not the false gods that you run to when things are only a little bit uncomfortable. So uh, we're going to do a little exercise here. Does everybody remember Twitter? Oh, don't make me feel old, guys. I'm only 34. Okay, so Twitter has this thing called a bio that you write, and it appears underneath your icon, and it's just two sentences-ish describing you. How would you introduce yourself if you only had two sentences to a complete stranger? So, real quickly, has everyone got their bio? Two sentences that explain you? Like who you are, what you're about, hobbies, sex, age, you know. So let me ask you a question. In your bio, where's God? Did he make the cut? Because he didn't make the cut on mine. I remember the day. See the... I got this, I got this. See, God demands our first fruits, but often we give him our leftovers. And it's time that we give him our first fruits, right? I remember the day that the Holy Spirit told me that I was an idolater. It was a father's heart in May or June of 2017, and I was sitting in the back row right back there, holding my newborn, worshiping, everything was great, and the Holy Spirit said to me, you place everything ahead of me, everything, but nothing as greatly as your career it's an idol for you. And he was right. I was an aircraft mechanic. I knew I wanted to be an aircraft mechanic from the time I was 11 years old. I, right out of high school, I went to trade school, and I was the youngest licensed AMP in the country at the time. I was all about that. Like, I loved airplanes. You know, In fact, we were having a conversation this morning in the car on the way to church about how when I would go to service oils on the engines, I, they, would, they would cut the fuel, and I would put my head against the cowl and listen to the sound of the engines. I, mean, I when I say passionate about airplanes, I was passionate about airplanes and nothing better get in the way of my career. Not my husband, not my kid, not my friends or family, and certainly not church. So once I stopped crying, because when the Holy Spirit hits you like that, it's like, I have failed in so many ways. <laughs> I asked him to repeat himself about a thousand times over the next two months. Because, you know, leave your career. Are you, are, are you sure? How many fleeces can I lay out before you get mad? Um, <laughs> when I finally accepted that that's what the Lord wanted to do, my argument to him was, well, who's going to pay the bills? Because I'm the breadwinner for my family. And I don't know how we're going to pay the bills if I'm not working. And he said to me, so, you will trust me with your life, but not with your finances. You see, two months prior to that, I had been induced to give birth to my son, who's two this year, and uh, I'd been induced to give labor, or to, to give birth, sorry, and there was one procedure one medical procedure that I was dead set against because I had researched it and I knew there were risks of it and I wasn't interested, I wasn't going to give that up. You know, I wasn't going to let that happen to me. The Lord told me while I was arguing with the doctor to allow them to give me this, to do this procedure. And <laughs> I did. And on the way to the OR for my resulting C-section, I, my placenta either ruptured 
or detached and experienced an amniotic fluid embolism while I was in surgery. Now, a quick fact about amniotic fluid embolism is it's a very rare birth complication. It happens to about 100 women in the United States. And uh, 85 of those women will die. 15 will survive. One will survive without permanent brain or organ damage. And the best part about that is if I, it, the reason I survived that is because I was already being treated for it because I consented to the treatment that I wasn't going to against my better judgment. The Lord told me, consent to this treatment, and it saved my life because he knew. He knew the complications from that were going to save my life. And you know what? The almighty Yahweh delivered me with an outstretched arm from the hand of death. And when he told me to give up my career, I said, I don't think you can provide for me. I hope that sounds as ridiculous to you guys as it did to me. So I gave up my idols. I put it to death. Smashed it. I'd be lying to you if I said it was easy. It was actually the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I sent this message to Bobby just to... I said, this is the very last of everything that I built being demolished. My heart is broken into a thousand pieces. The worst part is the knowledge that it needed to go. My empire had to fall so his could be built. But I can't escape the pain of it. It feels like a death or a bitter divorce. I put my effort into the wrong things. And this is my reward. Are you building his kingdom? Or are you building yours? So I want to share my favorite Bible story with you. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Oops. And then when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Silly, that was his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all those who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you are the temple of God? You are the temple. I am the temple. Are we forcing God to share the altar of our heart with false gods and idols? It's time to make room for God. I did, and it brought me closer to him. Wow, how do you follow that? All right, I'm Adam, and I made room for God, and I got closer to him by removing my distraction. It's crazy how this all works together, because aside from childbirth, same, similar story. So... I'm going to start with scripture, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he had taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken from her. So Martha was distracted and missing out on the importance of sitting at his feet because she was distracted by what she thought was more important. So this is my distraction. So like my wife said a couple of weeks ago in hers, in, we had moved out here in 2013, Found work, wasn't really working as far as the wage we needed. I was the breadwinner predominantly, and the opportunity had come up for me to go back to Michigan and work for my old boss, make a better wage, and I had a dream about it, thought it was the plan, thought it was the important thing, making the wage, not realizing what was going on. So I go back to Michigan. We set up plans, like she said, into the school year. Her and the kids are going to come back. We're back in Michigan. Life's going to move on. I think it was second week in February. Like she said, she's sitting in a meeting. She called me, and she's like, I can't leave. So 
I'm on a job site in Illinois. And I'm like, okay, cool. That's awesome. So what are we going to do now? So I began to prepare to make 2,400-mile journey back across country, not knowing where this is going at the time. And not knowing at the time that that was just like uh, the pebble in the pond. That was the drop. And then the ripples were going to come out from there. So I come back, didn't find a job right away. Um, my career identity was building houses from 15 on. I got into vocational training for it. It's who I was, it's what I did. I was good at it. So obviously we, when we lived out here before, I couldn't, I couldn't really work in the heat. I've had my heat injuries with the military and everything like that. The only thing I could find at the time which what we thought was supposed to be the right wage and everything was Safelight, worked for them for a little bit. And I think I was working there for five months. Went on a little vacation in July, come back that Monday. I had had over a gallon of water, picked up a windshield, my back and my leg cramped, called to see if I could get help. Manager calls me, she asked me how I was doing, has me call the nurse, they take me to the ER, and they give me all kinds of fluid blood test, and the doctor comes in and says, we're worried about one of your levels, you have acute kidney failure. And so they go through all that testing, my kidneys rebound, but the doctor makes the recommendation that you should find work to do inside, because the heat injuries are gonna be less and less, uh, they're gonna be more subtle from here on out. So. After that, Chance comes back to go to Michigan again. Boss calls me, hey, we got a big project. You, you, you know, would you guys consider moving back again? And me, not knowing what my wife is doing and everything that's happening here, I was completely blind to all of you, honestly. Uh, my distraction, my focus was going back to Michigan, right down to the fact that the boss was buying a vehicle so he could get me there. So, um, fought and fought and fought for it. Thought that was what was going to happen, and the whole time, my wife, who has no real church upbringing to speak of, was keeping a church alive, and was choosing the Holy Spirit and moving forward, and I was completely missing it. Um... She was focused on sitting at his feet and focusing on what was important, and I had completely missed out. So once I let that go and realized that that wasn't where we needed to be and accepted that there are way more important things and started actually being intentional about being here and getting to be part of this family that I have now because every bit of family that I have biologically is back in Michigan so that was obviously one of the big ties for me there um, among everything else and giving that up was huge for me was able to actually move forward and accept that Jesus is the only way to get through things like that and how easy is it today? Has anybody ever been distracted? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So where's your focus? Is your focus on a job? Is your focus on social media? Or is it sitting at his feet? What's more important to you? So I'm Adam. I got closer to God by removing, making room for him and removing my distraction. Good morning. Good morning, Charlie. I'm Charlie. She announced it for you, but I'm Charlie. And um, I grew closer to the Lord when I made room for him by removing fear of rejection. Um, fear of rejection is one of those things that kind of comes on slowly for most people. You may have a traumatic experience that has affected you, but the process of where it really becomes a mindset and then a belief and something that you actually begin acting upon and letting it hinder your very identity is something that happens slowly over time through a lot of different experiences. And for me, that's exactly how it took place. 
Um, I was surrounded by a lot of people who loved me, but Lance Armstrong said a boo is a lot louder than a cheer. You may have 10 people cheering for you, and the boo is the one voice that you will hear. And for me, rejection became that voice. It became the loudest thing that I heard. Um, my identity started becoming founded upon the criticisms and the just the constant voice of negativity in my life, that's what I picked up on. Even though there was so much encouragement and there was so much love around me in different places, um, all I could hear was the fear, the fear of man rejecting me, the criticism, um, just chipping away at my self-identity. And eventually my identity was founded upon what men thought of me, what they saw in me or didn't see in me. That was another big fear of mine, is that they would see me and see how I felt empty, completely a fraud that I would stand up here in confidence but really deep down like I'm right now shaking and trembling fear has always been something that's very real to me um, and unfortunately became more real to me than even the Lord and his voice um, I'm going to read a couple symptoms of of rejection when you meet someone who's dealing with a fear of rejection you meet someone who has fabricated a personality you become someone you're not in order to become accepted you have a tendency to reject others so that you aren't the first to be rejected I will tell you that is something that I stood in quite often I even began rejecting my own husband to continue that narrative that I was rejected because if I was rejected I didn't have to stand out in who the Lord actually made me to be I didn't have to stand firm in the identity I knew that I had um, we have a tendency to always wonder if a person accepts or rejects us. When you meet a person, you're always thinking, what do they think about me? So instead of focusing on being the Lord to other people, you're worried about how they are to you. So they become the Lord in your life. They become the idol. They become that voice that establishes your foundation. And let me tell you something. The problem with that is that if our identity is built on man's acceptance, it will crumble without it. I can tell you that's the truth. Um, I kind of came to a, a breaking point in my life with the fear of rejection. Um, as much as I'm like shaking and it freaks me out to stand up here in front of people, I want the Lord more. I want to be used by him. I want to feel his presence and hear his voice, and I want to release it to others. I want to be obedient. I want to be used. I want to move in my giftings and anointings. And uh, Bobby called me out one time, and he said, you need to stop standing in the background, and you need to move out into the forefront. And that was the scariest word I think I've ever gotten. But my spiritual mother said something to me. She said, the most selfish thing you can do is keep your gifts to yourself because they're not for you. What the Lord has put in you has been, it's something that he wants to birth and release to others. So I remember a moment where I was actually standing in that room and we had pre-service prayer in that room. And the Lord asked me three or four different times, do you love me? then release my word. Stop worrying about what man says and thinks of you and what they're not going to think of you. And if you mess it up or if it doesn't convey or if you don't say exactly what you want to say, just release it. Be obedient. And so he opened my mouth and out of my mouth came this really um, undignified cry. I just started yelling, yelling. I was like sounding like a shafar, just blowing this voice. And I'm one of those people that's timid. I stand back. I don't want to be heard. I don't want to be seen. I want to hide. Find a shadow for me. The spotlight is horrible. I don't want to be the one exposed. I needed to protect myself. And so when I did that, though, this cry and this praise, and when that fear of the Lord took over my spirit, and I released that because I was more afraid of disappointing him and letting him use me than I was of what man thought of me, something broke in me. And I want to come to a story. Um, I want you guys to, to go to Genesis 29, 31 through 35. And it's the story of Jacob when he marries Rachel and Leah. And what he did is he meets Laban, the father, and he works seven years for Rachel. And she's this beautiful younger daughter. She's gorgeous. She has all of this charisma. She's the one that every man wants. And Leah is the oldest daughter of Laban. And she was described as homely, dim-eyed, so maybe not very bright-eyed and vibrant, but more withdrawn. And um, what happens is on the wedding night, after he worked the first seven years, Laban pulls a switcheroo, gives him Leah, and he goes into her and spends his wedding night with her, wakes up the next morning and is like, I've been duped. This is not who I worked for. This is not what the agreement was. Seven years, I wanted Rachel. And instead, he got Leah. So he worked another seven years. He worked it for Rachel. So now he's worked 14 years to get Rachel and never wanted Leah. So I don't know if that doesn't say something about rejection. Um, let me go ahead and read this with you, though. 
When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, which means praise. Then she stopped bearing. I also want to jump really quickly to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. It's interesting that in this lineage, it doesn't mention the first three sons of Leah. It mentions Judah. And when Leah first named her first three sons, they were focused on man's acceptance or rejection of her. She named them after, now God's seen my affliction. Now he's given me this son because I am in love. And the third son, now my husband will have to become attached to me. Her eyes were still fixed on man. But as soon as she turned her eyes to the son, to the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who established her true identity and lifted up praise in spite of the rejection, her rejection in standing with man hadn't changed. But when she lifted her eyes and declared who he is and began to praise, that birthed the son of God. That birthed what is the overcomer of rejection. He lived and walked all of rejection. He, he, he endured the ultimate rejection and he put it in the grave so that we could stand in our true identity in Christ and stand in the constant knowing that we are overcomers by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, that our identity is in him, that we are seated in the heavenly places, that we have the crown, we have the robe of righteousness, that we don't have to look at the fear of man to identify us. We don't have to be shaken when man looks at us and says, you're not enough, close your mouth, move to the back and sit down. But we can stand in boldness and release. And when we do, we break off for the future generations, just like Leah did. When she finally opened her mouth, future generations saw the fullness of freedom. So, so when I finally opened my mouth and I broke agreement with silence and I broke agreement with the fear of man, I was released and began to birth something in my life, and that's why I'm standing here today. I began to birth the call on my life. I began to birth out of a place of praise, sitting at his feet, as we heard about, pulling down the idol of man, as we heard about. I began to birth the praise. I began to birth my Judah. So I grew closer to the Lord when I made room for him by removing fear of rejection. Good morning, Encounter. My name is Jen, and I am going to share with you how I got closer to God when I made room for him by removing performance. Since I was a little girl, I can remember being in love with the thought of performing, with theater, with music, with dancing, uh, singing. <laughs> Picture little four-year-old Jen in her tutu and her ballet slippers with her microphone, doing pirouettes in the living room, singing Part of Your World at the top of her lungs. Um, as I grew older, I would put on skits using my siblings and my cousins. And even from that young age, I can remember through that applause that I got, finding approval and validation in my performance. I might be the only one um, who did these things as an adolescent and a young adult, but um, I can remember being in high school and in college and changing myself based off of who I was around. I would put on a little bit of a character, if you will, to get that validation and that acceptance. Um, I struggled with low self-esteem. My self-worth was not very, very good. And I just had this feeling like what I had to offer as just plain Jen in my eyes wasn't enough. I had major insecurities. And bottom line is I was just hungry for affirmation. That um, bled into my marriage a little bit, bled into motherhood. 
Um, we live in a culture and a society that's so social media based and everything you see is this picture perfect capture. In the back of our minds, we know that it's not the truth, but it, leads, it can lead down a path of comparison, which I struggled with. Perfectionism, feeling like I had to have everything all together, all my ducks had to be in a row. And if I didn't, I was failing. I put on these false expectations that, other, you know, that I thought others had, and inevitably I became a slave to it. When I gave my life to the Lord at 17 years old, I naturally fell back into that performance as the foundation of my relationship with the Lord. I was immediately placed on a stage, handed a microphone because of my gifting and my talent and expected to lead people into worship. And with that, my gift actually became my identity. I became comfortable in that performance, in those songs that people would expect um, and, and, and wanted to hear and see, and I thought that's what God wanted to see. In my performance, I painted this picture of who I thought others wanted me to be, and I thought that's what God wanted me to be as well. And in doing that, for years, I'd been so afraid to allow the Lord to use my voice in its fullest potential, to do something like this to speak to you. Going on this journey um, over the years, I've become comfortable in my raw and broken self before the Lord in worship, I found beauty in it. But to be before people in that capacity and be that raw and vulnerable, it was really hard. I had false expectations of who others think I am. Marrying my hunky husband there. His family, the Babel family, I, they, they move in such a way that I, I didn't have exposure to. They're weighty, they're revelatory, they're prophetic. And I felt, I always felt like I was so much farther behind. They never once made me feel like that. They did the opposite. They actually poured so much into me. But it's that foundation that I had as a young child, which even led to me doubting that I trusted that I heard the Lord for myself. I doubted that I had, you know, this, this blossoming relationship with the Father, this beautiful exchange back and forth. I talked about feeling inadequate and comparison. All these things wrapped around me so tightly and held me in bondage. I ran from the thought of who God not only calls me to be, but knows me to be because of my lust for approval of man and finding validity in their words rather than God's. It wasn't until one day that God asked me this really simple two-part question. He said, Jen, do you love me, and is my love enough? Uh, yeah, talk about a tear fest. <laughs> um, but this began a really slow journey of tearing down this character of Jen that I had performed for affirmation and acceptance into the daughter of, that God called me um, and created me to be. And he accepted and affirmed me right where I was at. Um, just for time's sake, and because Pastor Casey did a great job, um, can you put up Romans 8 for me? I'm not going to read it, but Casey read a little bit. Um, but through those scriptures, what I've realized is performance is that spirit of slavery that talk, that's uh, talked about in chapter 15. Um, sorry, verse 15. I had become a slave to the fear of man and the approval of man, so I would perform to get it. But what's so beautiful is God didn't create us to be slaves. He created us to be heirs. He created us to be sons and daughters. We are his, and he is ours. By the spirit of adoption, we no longer have to perform out of fear, perform for man's approval, but we're adopted into a family whose father already accepts and loves us just as we are. A father who knows the truth. He knows the deep places in our hearts, even if we try and hide it. A father who's waiting with arms open wide. I've realized that God won't build relationship with the person we try to project to be. But he will be real and authentic with us when we lower our walls. Strip off the layers, the makeup if you will, and stop performing. I don't know if you guys have picked up on the way that this worked out. It was so beautiful. God's really trying to speak to something about, especially Romans 8, that we are his sons and daughters. By the grace of God, I am still walking out this process. 
But in being a slave to the performance, I was never completely able to walk in the fullness of being a mother, being a wife, being a friend, being a leader, until I completely grabbed hold and accepted my identity as the daughter of the king. I want to encourage you guys. Our father loves you and wants you just as you are. He wants the broken you. He wants the I don't have everything together you. And he wants to lead you to that safe place at his feet where his love covers all. And we can begin to find our confidence and our identity in Abba Father. So my name is Jen, and I got closer to God when I made room for him by removing performance. Awesome job, you guys. I need the worship team to come back up and help us. Um, I think the Lord is asking every one of us in this place this morning, and I love that Jen went last because I felt like the Lord uh, spoke to my heart and asked me, who are you dancing for? Are you dancing for, like Jen said, the approval of man or... Or, you, you know, there's something that's motivating you. I remember this story uh, about this, this uh, man and his daughter. And his daughter's mother wasn't around. And so he, it was just him and his daughter. And he raised her. And, and they had this tradition every Christmas Eve around this time of year that all the family would come over to their house. And they'd have this big family party. And, and she was just a little girl. And she loved it. But she knew every single year after the family left on Christmas Eve before she went to bed, her dad would put on some music and, and every year they would dance together. And so Christmas would come around every year. The family would come over on Christmas Eve. They'd leave and then she'd run and say, Daddy, are we going to dance? And, and he'd say, of course we are. And he'd turn, turn the music on and just him and his daughter every year would dance together on Christmas Eve. Until she got a little older and she got in a relationship uh, when she was 17 with a, with a man and and the father didn't approve of this man, and she rebelled, and she ran away from home and uh, got a place with this, with this guy. Um, didn't work out, just like her dad said it wasn't going to work out. But she, she was, had too much pride to run back home and say, you were right, Dad. And so she ended up being homeless, thrown out on the street by this guy. So she needed to make some money, so she went and she got a, a job dancing for other men. And every night she would go to work and she'd dance for men and her father eventually found out where she was, and, and every, single, every single month he would write a letter. Years went by, and she was still dancing for men, but every, men, every, every month she'd get a letter in the mail at her, at her place, and, and, and she saw the return address, and it was her dad, and she would never open it. She didn't want to look back. She didn't want to go back to that place. She, she was hurt. She had too much pride, and she'd put him in a box. And years went by, and every month the same thing, a letter from her dad, a letter from her dad, until one night she was at work, and, and it was Christmas Eve. And she danced, and when she went back into the dressing room, there were some other girls there, and, and on her desk was a letter. And it didn't have an address, it just had her name. And she asked one of the other girls, and she said, where did this come from? And she said, oh, uh, an older man, he came by, and he, he left that here. And she said, well, what did he look like? And, and, she, and she described him, and she thought, that's, that's my dad. And so for the first time, she opened the letter. And in it, it only, had, it only had two sentences. It said, I love you. Please come home. And she immediately ran back to her house and got the box and started to open up every single letter she'd gotten over the years. And every single one of them said the exact same thing. I love you. Please come home. And she thought to herself, maybe it's not too late. It, it's Christmas Eve after all. And she went to the house and, and she, she knocked on the door and, and everyone had left except for one of her uncles who was there and he answered the door and, and he said, oh, it's, it's you. And she had her head down and, and uh, the uncle said, he'll be glad to see you. And, and the uncle went and got the dad and then the uncle left and, and she stood there in the doorway with her head down and she said, is it too late? And he said, it's never too late. And he took her by the hand and they went inside and he put on some music and they danced together. Can I tell you that there's, there's a great moment this morning where you can make room for God this Christmas. Because I got to tell you, I don't know what you're dancing for this morning, but Jesus Christ will share the throne of your heart with no one and nothing. 
He wants to sit on the throne of your heart. But if there's already something seated there, it's time for you to say, like they've all said, move out of the way because God sits in this place. Will you stand up to your feet with me this morning? Father, in the name of Jesus, I believe your Holy Spirit is in this place. I thank you for the words, and, and I thank you for the transparency of those that have shared this morning. I just ask this morning that you would move on hearts, God. Before we leave here, we're going to worship you, Lord. And I believe you want to do some work in people's hearts, God. I believe you want to do some surgery, Jesus, and have a moment with just you and them, God. I believe you came and you were born in a manger to eventually die and be raised from the dead to pay the price for every single person in this place. But specifically, I believe God has been speaking to you this morning. That there's some things in your life that he's been saying, I can't sit there until you move that. And it doesn't mean you have to do it on your own. If you, if you say, yes, Lord, he will help you let go of some things in your life. He will help you create a space, but it just takes surrender. And I believe it starts this morning. I'm going to ask our externs that shared the word this morning. They're going to spread across the stage here. And I believe there's some of you here that can share in their experiences and can share in what they've went through and what they're going through. And I'm going to ask them to pray with you before you leave. Please do not leave this place if the Lord is speaking to you without doing some work with the Lord this morning. Come on, let's worship him for a couple minutes. If you need prayer, you just need someone to agree with you and just lay a hand on you and cry with you. I don't know what it is, but I want to invite you up to speak with these externs. Come on, right now.